Welcome to Open-Minded Healing, where the topic is alternative health. We will be having conversations with the practitioners that offer a variety of alternative healing modalities, as well as everyday people who have recovered their health outside of the MD's office. Join us with an open mind for conversations that may provide solutions to healing your own body on a mental, physical, and spiritual level. I'm Marla Miller. Let's begin. Welcome back to Open-Minded Healing. Today, I will be speaking to Dr. John Lewis about how important true nutrition, specific supplementation, and exercise is for your overall health. And then Dr. Lewis will be discussing his research around polysaccharides and the exciting impact it has had on severe health issues such as Alzheimer's, dementia, and MS, as well as a host of other conditions. So this should be a very interesting conversation. Welcome, Dr. Lewis. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Before we dive into today's topic, can you let the listeners know where you're coming from, from an academic standpoint, so they understand your knowledge base and that this is something you are so well-versed in and educated in? Sure, Marla. Thank you for that. I spent about 20 years of my life professionally at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. I was a member of the faculty there full-time, again, for about 20 years. And I, I ran clinical trials. I ran clinical trials in nutrition, dietary supplements, exercise training. I was involved in a couple of other medical device studies. But because of my own personal interest in health and wellness and really the foundation, as we will discuss in terms of nutrition, dietary supplements and exercise training, those were my interests. And so I spent a lot of time and it's still my mission today, even though I'm no longer in academics, but looking at what I refer to as natural ways to improve the human condition. And I think there's a saying, your health is your wealth, right? Like it yeah. doesn't really matter how much money you have, how many homes, cars, whatever. If you're not healthy, what do all those material things mean? And so mm. for me, I had as a child, as a teenager, I had a lot of throat infections, even though I was very active, I played a lot of sports, but I still was sick a lot and I didn't know why. And then I, as I look back on it, when I really started shifting into a plant-based diet of eating, that it dawned on me that growing up as a Southerner, I ate a lot of very bad food. I ate too much processed food, too much fatty food, sugary food, animal food. I didn't really eat well. I ate more for taste as opposed to eating for health. But that kind of led me down one path. Meanwhile, I, as I mentioned, I played a lot of sports. I got into drug-free competitive bodybuilding in college. And so those things just kind of merged together over time. And then I really was very fortunate to meet some individuals and people with companies, mostly with dietary supplement studies, that I was able to create a niche for myself at the University of Miami, where truly I was one of only just a handful of people doing this kind of research, because literally 99% of the folks there, if you're not doing pharmacology or genetics, then, you know, maybe you're doing some other kind of behavioral, psychological type of work. But for the most part, it's all about pharmacology and genetics at the medical school. So I truly was a black sheep. And so I spent a long time, again, in academics doing a lot of this work that is very challenging and very difficult to do because of when you're using human beings as test subjects, with all due respect to my basic scientist colleagues who maybe are looking at cells or tissues or animals, I like to say I've never had a rat not show up to an appointment, right? Yeah. <laughs> but with human beings, of course, you know, depending on them to show up for appointments and 
stick to the protocol and doing what you're asking them to do. That's very challenging work. But to date, I've published close to, I think it's about 190 scientific peer-reviewed articles. I've been invited to conferences and workshops around the world to talk about my research and nutrition and exercise and health in general. So I've lived a very fortunate life to have met some folks along the way who got me, especially in this road of polysaccharides that we'll talk about. It's almost impossible for somebody to know everything about every discipline within nutritional science. So I've been pretty focused down this polysaccharide road, and I love it because it gives me opportunities to educate people about what polysaccharides are and where they come from and why they're so beneficial for us, but also because not a lot of people are doing it. And then finally, because they actually really work. It's not just like, you know, you're telling somebody, well, hey, try this. I have no idea if it will help you, but try it. No, I, I know these things work, not only from my research over the years, but also from all the individuals that I've helped over this time as well. So I have a very strong academic base. I left academics full time six years ago. I still have a voluntary academic appointment, but my focus shifted from academics to business with a scientific base. I do what I do based on my work and trying to live a life for people as a model as best as I can to say, well, look at this guy. He keeps himself in very good shape. He eats a certain way. He supplements a certain way. He's actually doing what he says he's doing. He's not telling us to do one thing, but then meanwhile, he never exercises and he eats at McDonald's every day and he wouldn't even ever take his own product. So I want to live a life that people can look at me and say, yeah, he really does it. He's really living that life. And there are millions, if not billions of people who need a lot of help out there today. So that's what I'm aspiring to be in, in my business career in this phase of my life. I'm very interested in what you have to say, because we are going to be discussing three topics that people hear about all the time when it comes to their health, which is nutrition, exercise, and supplements. But I think the conversation we're going to have today is going to really touch upon things that people have not heard about. When they think of those topics, they think of basic, eat healthy, try and eat maybe vegetables and fruits and possibly organic stuff. Some people don't even go that far. But I want to hear your whole take because you're a wealth of information on this topic. Why do you think nutrition is so important when it comes to our health? Great question. So I think, Marley, it's very simple. If you look at the scientific literature, and I'm talking behavior at this point, I'm not talking about people focused on genetics or pharmacology, but if you look purely at behavior and you compare nutrition to, say, exercise or movement, stress management, insomnia, other lifestyle factors like, you know, drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes. Uh, I mean, there are obviously lots of things that humans do every day, right? But if you look at Really, truly what's most important in terms of shaping our health and providing information to our cells, which fundamentally, I think that's something people don't realize as well. Everything we do is actually an opportunity to provide information to our cells. And so the number one way that we do that is simply through what we put into our mouths, what we eat and drink. And that, to me, is the reason why nutrition far and away is the most important factor. Now, obviously, you know, in cases like where you smoke or you use tobacco, that's a very specific behavior that is related to obviously certain diseases of the throat, the lung, the heart. Those are, you know, without question. But to me, that's like a very specific niche almost. 
Whereas nutrition is much broader than that. And you mentioned healthy eating. I mean, wow, <laughs> we could spend a whole hour of our show, you know, talking just what is the optimal or the most preferred way to eat because you have people that are plant-based like me. And then of course, people that are carnivore on the total other end of the spectrum. And then you have the keto crowd, the paleo crowd, Mediterranean dash on and on and on. So <laughs> it's a very controversial and interesting topic when we talk about the optimal way to eat. Yeah. So nutrition is feeding our cells. A lot of times people think of maybe healthier skin or they think of losing weight if they eat a certain way. But we're really talking about how it feeds the inner body, the actual cells of our body, right? So they can really function as they were meant to. Would you say in the past that what people were eating was sufficient, basically no matter what they ate, because maybe the soil was different or it wasn't being sprayed with chemicals or what have you. Do you think from that perspective, today's food is very different from, say, a couple hundred years ago? No question about it. I think we could even go back to just as recently as the Green Revolution. That was really when all of these chemical inputs started going into let's call it corporate agriculture, which I think is what it's mostly termed today or big agriculture. And so, yes, I agree with you. When you talk about our ancestors going back to around the turn of the 20th century, most people actually were involved in agriculture in one form or another. It was very much an agrarian society back in those days. And so I know my grandparents, their parents, they all had a garden and it was a big deal to them to raise their own food and I mean, I think back to my childhood when I would eat my grandfather's tomatoes. I mean, my gosh, those were the most delicious tomatoes I ever ate. And now you buy a tomato today and you kind of think, eh, what in the world is this? Like, it doesn't have much taste and even the color seems different. The texture seems different. So I totally agree with you. Now, my caveat to saying 100 years ago was that diet sufficient is that we know, thankfully, through the course of scientific evolution and creativity with things that people are looking at around the world is that there are many plants, I think that are probably many plants that haven't even been discovered yet that have significant benefit for human health and animal health. But certainly the ones that we do know of in that last hundred years or so, they have been shown to be very beneficial that probably most people wouldn't get in the diet. Say, for example, allopolysaccharides, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but that's something that's, again, kind of like a niche. Like I mentioned before, it's another niche where those kinds of polysaccharides from aloe vera, you would not have gotten on a diet. I mean, I never knew of anyone using aloe vera to eat. It was always if you had a cut or a sunburn, you know, you'd put it on your skin. But thinking of, you know, actually ingesting aloe vera, <laughs> that's a pretty foreign concept to most humans. So there are caveats to that. But I do agree with your general premise or notion that 100 years ago, our food was way more nutritious than it is today. You have the chemical inputs, you have genetic modification and you have all the pollution and just the way agriculture has shifted over the last hundred years. Unfortunately, for most of us, that has not resulted in more nutritious food, but actually less nutritious food. Let's talk about what nutrition means to you personally. What do you think is nutritious eating and how do you think that is or no, that is affecting the body when it comes to certain diseases, let's say? Well, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I eat a plant-based diet. I've been doing that for 26 years. And I know that you're going to have listeners that say, oh, I eat meat. And I think that eating animals is good for you. I don't like to get into arguments with people about stuff like that. But 
You asked me what I think personally for me is the best or what I practice, if you will. And so I started this 26 years ago. It's hard to believe it's been that long. But for me, like plants support all animals, right? There would be no animal life on earth without plants. And so the people who are always advocating for eating more meat or eating more animal tissue, well, my question to those folks is, where do those animals get their food or how do they get their nutrition? It comes from plants. So when you eat an animal, it's kind of just a middle step, if you will, from the plant tissue that those animals were fed for them to be raised for food for human beings. So to me, that's a very inefficient process. And I mean, again, there are lots of different arguments, pro and con, for why we should or should not eat this way. But I just know for me personally, I felt a big difference in my life in terms of eating a plant-based diet and enjoying the benefits of that, meaning that for my age, I feel like I'm very healthy. I have exceptional blood work, lab work, whatever you want to call it. I look at my markers, not that often. I really don't feel like that's necessarily the thing to do, but I do feel like if you eat a wide range of vegetables, fruits, grains, nuts, seeds, there's no question in my mind, you're getting all the nutrition that you need. Now, you know, some people may argue, well, what about vitamin B12? I do supplement with some vitamin B12. I think that's not a bad thing to do. Why not? Vitamin D, you know, it's another one where people think if you're not eating animal tissue. How do you get it? Well, guess what? Again, all human beings, all mammals, all animals, you get your vitamin D mostly through the sun. You want to be exposed to sunshine, especially for humans. That's how we would get our best source of vitamin D. And then, of course, the most commonly asked question related to someone eating a plant-based diet is what about protein? You know, how do you get your protein? So again, I would ask the same question like, well, how does a cow get his or her protein? The cow is, is also eating plants to get protein through the plants that the cow is fed. So same thing for me, like I'm eating a wide range of greens, nuts, seeds, grains that give me all the different amino acids that I need to be not only just sufficient, but in my opinion, have optimal health. And then I supplement with these polysaccharides that again, I think we'll talk about later, but I think those are things once again, it's very difficult to get from the diet. And I don't care if you're vegan or carnivore or keto or whatever else you are, you're not getting those from aloe vera. And you might be getting a little bit from rice if you eat the brown rice. But if you're like most people who eat white rice, you're not getting any of those because those polysaccharides are actually contained in the rice bran. Okay. Yeah. You explained all that very well. And I know there's a lot of studies out there, some meat studies, but when you dive behind who's behind it, sometimes it's someone who's benefiting from the knowledge they're putting out there. So it's important to really figure that out. Right. Well, if I may, I I could share with you a point there, and that is that public schools get their so-called nutrition education, guess from whom? Primarily the dairy industry. So obviously the dairy industry is to their benefit to promote drinking milk, eating cheese, ice cream, whatever else. To your point, there's a very significant financial component to what we call education for our children in public school, when I would almost argue that it's dairy industry propaganda. For whatever the dairy industry wants to say that we should be drinking cow's milk, there are probably 10, if not 100 times number of the amount of studies showing that actually drinking cow's breast fluid is not appropriate for human beings. So I don't think there's any real controversy about that. It's actually pretty clear that we should not be consuming the breast fluid from cows. Yeah, the important thing is to not listen to advertising that you see daily in magazines and on TV. I remember years back when the 
government had an excess of corn. And so then those ads started being pumped out like crazy, like how we needed corn products. So sometimes it's that, right? They need to offload excess products. So the key here, I guess, is to look at the science, not the ads, right? That's right. Exactly. And, you know, really today, it's so important for all of us. I always like to say, keep your power. Don't turn your power over to someone else who's wearing a white coat because you think that person has your best interests at heart. Well, fundamentally, he or she may, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're giving you the best information. So we really deserve it to ourselves and to our own health to know what we're actually doing to ourselves. Do your own homework. Unless you're incompetent, you know, if someone's incompetent with Alzheimer's or autism or something, that's a different story if that person is dependent on a caregiver. But for those of us who are competent, do your homework. I mean, the internet can be our worst enemy, but it can also be our best friend in terms of going to PubMed, going to scholarly websites where all this information is contained and maintained And use that information for your benefit. Don't just depend on someone else to give you the accurate or the correct information, because that may not be true. Yes, exactly. So what are some other websites someone might go to to get the accurate scientific information and studies? You said PubMed. Is there another one, too? Well, I think PubMed is the gold standard. And the good thing about PubMed that's changed over the last few years is that any study that then has an article published on it that was uh, funded by the government, whether it's NIH, CDC, other branches of the government, that article has to be freely available to the public. That was a few years ago that law actually passed. One of the things the government actually did to our benefit. So there really is no excuse for someone not to be able to type in PubMed.gov the site will come right up. It's got the search box right there at the top of the page. You just stick in the terms that you're looking for and you'll get a whole host of information, not just about nutrition, but literally anything related to public health and medicine. So to me, PubMed is the standard. I don't really even use anything else. Of course, there's something like Google Scholar, but I'm a little bit concerned about Google these days because they're censoring people and they're driving people to certain websites because they have an agenda. So I'm a bit skeptical about places like Google Scholar, but PubMed to me is the gold standard. Okay, that's good to know. A good piece of information. So before we move on to supplementation, is there any other thing around the topic of nutrition that you want to add in right now? Thank you for asking that. I I think one of the things that people should remember about nutrition is that there is no such thing is a perfect study. You cannot possibly account for every variable or every factor that could somehow have an effect on the outcomes of a study. And as to your point earlier, I mean, there is always a bias, particularly related to funding. So that has to be taken into consideration as well. When it comes to nutritional science, I get very, let's say, aggravated when people try to to take the pharmacological paradigm and then apply that to nutritional science. It doesn't work for a whole host of reasons, but the most important reason for people to understand is you cannot take the pharmacological paradigm of the double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial and then apply that to nutritional science. And there's one simple reason why, and that is because the body was never designed or evolved to be dependent on a chemical or something synthetic. So it's very easy for drug companies to take their synthetic chemical 
and then look at how that affects our cells. It's very easy to look at those metabolic byproducts of what a drug does to our cells. Nutrition enables our cellular function. Pharmacology alters our cellular functioning, and that is the reason why we have side effects from drugs. So when you try to look at a nutritional study and then break it down into what exactly it means, you have to take into consideration that if a group of investigators are looking at the effect of, let's say, vitamin D or calcium or vitamin C or whatever, it's almost impossible to account for all the different effects that that supplement or that particular change in, in diet may have related to the outcome measures. And it's not easy to look at how that study is conducted within the context of how those subjects are living their lives where they're maybe taking a, a particular supplement for the study, but then what about all the other food that they're eating along with it? So there's just no way to apply that, again, placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized controlled trial paradigm that pharmacology uses and stands by, and anything that doesn't meet the standard, they say, is hogwash. And so I have a big problem with how people look at that type of research design and then apply it to everything else. And by the way, it doesn't just have to be nutrition. It could be with exercise or acupuncture or any other kind of lifestyle. It's very, very difficult to account for all those other factors. And so I just want people to understand that just because Big Pharma or somebody Big Pharma is paying to put down nutrition research, number one, there's probably a financial conflict. Many times there is. But number two, again, you have to take into consideration the context of the research design and how the research is conducted to make sense of it. So what I like to tell people to do is look at the different types of research there is related to nutrition. You have scientists who look at things on a very basic level in cells, tissues, and animals, and you can get very good information on what happens in the short term in those types of studies. Then you have people like me that run clinical trials, and those are within humans usually for a short period of time, maybe a couple of months, maybe up to a year or two. And then you have epidemiological or observational studies where you look at maybe thousands of people and you follow them over a period of time. You're not intervening with them, but you're following them and then you're tracking their behaviors and then you're tracking their health outcomes. So when you can combine all those types of studies together and then you see trends within those studies agreeing with each other, that's where you know you're on the right track. Yeah, I can see how it'd be very different from how you would analyze the pharmaceutical products on the body. Yeah, very, that's, very different. Yeah, that's good to take that into account and think about that. So regarding supplementation, this is another topic that I think people think of in a general way. Like we need vitamin D and zinc and, you know, they hear certain things, especially during COVID, I think, but it was like zinc and vitamin D and specific right. supplements. I guess not only... Do we need to consider which supplements we need in particular, like individually, but also the quality of those supplements? And I'm curious to hear your take on that. And then as well as any research you've done on particular supplements, like how it helps our bodies or can help brain health or whatever it is you've found. Absolutely. So from 1994 up till today, it's gone from maybe a five to six billion dollar per year industry up to now roughly 60 billion. I mean, these numbers are not perfectly known, but estimated. So I say all that to say that the dietary supplement industry continues growing over the last nearly 30 years. And the reason why I think it does is because people are looking for alternatives to what they're being told 
conventionally and they're searching for ways to help themselves be healthy when really conventional medicine is not meeting that bill, so to speak. So for me, I, I think dietary supplements are very important. I don't think that you can supplement your way to good health. I think you still have to have the majority of your nutritional information to your cells coming from your food. But nonetheless, as we mentioned earlier, you know, there are things going on with food production that kind of limit the amount of nutrition that we get, especially in some of these more commonly thought of nutrients or phytonutrients that are not in the modern diet anymore. And so I think it's very important for people to consider adding supplementation to their daily routine. And you mentioned vitamin D and zinc and how those got a lot of notoriety over the last few years with COVID. And certainly if you look at vitamin D, I mean, that's a great example, actually. We ran a study in elderly folks with vitamin D and I'd have to double check my memory, but I think we tested about 120 people in that study and here we are in South Florida, you know, the sunshine state where people should be getting a lot of sunshine. 70% of those people were either insufficient or deficient in their vitamin D level. Yeah. And that's in South Florida. That's not in Minnesota or North Dakota where those folks are not getting much sunshine. We're having a major health crisis of vitamin D insufficiency or deficiency as just one example of a real serious nutritional problem that we have in the United States. And vitamin D is very cheap. I mean, again, if you're not able to go outside every day for 15 or 20 minutes and get most of your body exposed to sun, just buy a vitamin D3 supplement. It's not a very expensive thing to do and to incorporate into your daily routine. So for me, dietary supplements are very important. And to your point about quality, I totally agree with you as well. You know, there are some very common products on the market that maybe people buy at the drugstore or the grocery store, and they're synthetic. They're not natural. In most cases, those products are not very good. I do think that it's like any other consumer decision you would make. If you're going to buy a new car or maybe you're shopping for a new house or something, you do your homework and you say, okay, which model do I like or what are characteristics or what traits am I looking for? So I think a lot of times people do their homework on that. But when it comes to a dietary supplement, they just go into the store and they just pick something off the shelf that looks nice or maybe it's the price point they're looking for and they don't even read the label. They don't even bother to look at what's actually in this thing. And so that's, to me, is a big mistake. Going back to like what we were discussing earlier about doing your homework on PubMed, same thing with making a decision about buying a dietary supplement. I think it's important to look at the quality. There are good companies out there. I've worked with them in my past life as a full-time academic researcher. And, you know, there are companies out there that are putting very good materials into their ingredients. Now, for most people, you know, we think of, Taking a dietary supplement means a multivitamin and mineral. And again, when it comes to things like vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, calcium, magnesium, I mean, certainly those are the typical vitamins and minerals that most folks need more of. And so there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's relatively an inexpensive way of helping to ensure that you're getting what you need every day. But you asked me about the work that I did in my career. The work that I did was a whole different animal. We focused on very specific polysaccharides coming mostly from two plants, one from aloe vera and the other one from rice bran. And Marla, what we showed in, in our work was just really phenomenal in terms of, of how these particular polysaccharides are so beneficial. Mostly we looked at for the immune system, but in reality, they're working on all 30 plus trillion cells in our body just because of what other scientists around the world have discovered about how these polysaccharides are so crucial to cellular functioning. But I've had a just a, an amazing career at the University of Miami where we looked at these particular polysaccharides and how beneficial they were for 
lots of different people and lots of different disease or health challenges, I should say. Let's get into that more. How would you describe what a polysaccharide is? So these polysaccharides, I like to use that word because it's it's one of these teachable moments, as psychologists like to say, where if I had said to you, sugars are good for you, you probably would have said, well, wait a minute. What? <laughs> We've been told that sugar is very bad for us. But I always like to use this moment as an opportunity to say a sugar is not a sugar, meaning that there are lots of different sugars in nature. And so there are simple sugars. So something like high fructose corn syrup is a simple sugar that's used as a cheap sweetener. And that's not the kind of sugar that you want to be consuming every day. However, these complex sugars are polysaccharides. So there are monosaccharides, simple compound, disaccharides, a little bit more complex, and then poly or oligosaccharides that are much more complex. And again, this is due to the chains and the structure of the molecules of the different bonds that are contained within these molecules. But when we think of polysaccharides, a lot of times people think of eating things like, say, for example, green beans or other beans, lentils, okra, sweet potatoes, things like that, that are high in complex carbohydrates. And certainly those are the types of carbohydrates that I would recommend for folks to eat to in general. But when you talk about these very specific polysaccharides from aloe vera and rice bran, Marla, these things are on a whole different level. So we looked at several different studies. On the aloe vera side, we studied people with Alzheimer's disease and multiple sclerosis. And then on the rice bran side, we looked at people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is becoming another very serious issue today, liver disease in general, people with HIV, and then another study with healthy people. But time and time again, the data showed, and we published lots of papers from all these different studies. And actually, I'm still publishing from this work today. I just submitted a paper from our Alzheimer's study a couple of weeks ago. But time and time again, it was fascinating to look at how these polysaccharides, again, these complex sugars, When you introduce them into the diet without doing anything else, without changing the diet, without exercising people, changing their medications, uh, you know, doing any other lifestyle modification, just simply introducing these polysaccharides into the diet, you would see time and time again, such amazing benefits. That's interesting. So why do you associate certain diseases with the rice bran versus the aloe vera? Academic research is driven, as we've already discussed, by funding. And so I had funding to do the research with the aloe in the Alzheimer's and MS subjects. And I had funding to do the rice bran work with people with HIV and the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So if I had just a big pile of money sitting in a bank that I could just pick and choose, you know, whatever I wanted to do, then I could go down those particular roads. In the last 10 years, when we published the first article from the Alzheimer's paper, I tried twice with NIH and twice with the Alzheimer's Association to get more funding to extend our our line of research. Unfortunately for all of us, I got crickets in response. I couldn't get any interest in getting more funding. In fact, our Alzheimer's study was only funded because we got a gift from a very generous family who had had four family members die of Alzheimer's disease, and they were interested in extending the research in nutrition, and their only real criteria was that we study people with Alzheimer's disease. Oh, yeah, that's interesting how that all comes about. So you're saying with that study regarding Alzheimer's and dementia as well, what did you find overall with the aloe vera? So with the formula that we used for the Alzheimer's study, at this point, it's the highlight of my research career in terms of not just running a good study, you know, doing good science, but actually having 
a benefit and actually making a difference in people's lives, which to me, that's the most rewarding thing about running a clinical trial is when you get to the end of running a trial with human beings, not tissues or cells or animals, you actually know whether or not your stuff works. You know, you don't have to translate it from something else. You'll know pretty much immediately, well, did this work or not? Yeah. And so we looked at this formula. We chose to select people with moderate to severe disease, which big pharma is not really interested in those folks. They look at people at that stage as really kind of lost causes. They don't really think of them as being testable subjects. And so we wanted to choose the worst of the worst. We knew that these folks were in desperate, especially the caregivers, not so much the person afflicted, because unfortunately that person is not coherent anymore. But the caregiver, those are the folks that really have the most significant in terms of the emotional component. They're the ones who are the most significantly affected. So we knew those caregivers were very desperate to find something to give to their loved one. And so we put them on the supplement for 12 months. We had enough funding to look at the biomarkers in the blood at baseline in 12 months. And then we did the neurocognitive testing at baseline three, six, nine, and 12 months. So five times we did the cognitive testing. Two times we looked at what was going on in the blood. And it just absolutely blew us away. Now, we ran this study in the face of a group of people that were at the center where there were a lot of Alzheimer's patients. These folks were very skeptical. They said, well, you know, we do pharmacology here. We don't really do nutrition, but you have some money and we've got a lot of patients. So we're happy to work with you. But they were very skeptical. They didn't think the nutrition would do anything. They just said, we don't think this is going to show anything. And a lot of the people who enrolled in the study had been coming to the daycare there at the center for many years. You know, these were people that they knew well, and they knew that really the FDA approved drugs for dementia weren't really doing anything for these people. So, you know, at that point, it's kind of like, well, why not? There's no other alternative. So why not? So we started the study. And, you know, as we're starting to enroll people, I start getting caregivers calling me literally in tears of joy saying, Dr. Lewis, I cannot believe what my loved one is now talking about, doing again, literally just things that for years, in some cases, had been completely lost. And these were people on average, 79.9 years of age. So these were people that were quite advanced in age, had a very serious health challenge. By the way, they didn't just have Alzheimer's. In many cases, they had depression, diabetes, heart disease. You know, they had a lot of different health problems going on. So very sick and impaired people. The oldest lady we had in the study, I believe at that time, she was 93. She had had the disease for about, I think, 11 years. She was wow. in a wheelchair. She could speak. A very, very impaired person. And at the three-month intervention, when she came in one day, she actually walked in and she called one of the coordinators by his first name. I mean, it was wow. so emotionally powerful for him. Yeah, that he he started crying. He could not believe that this lady actually walked that day and remembered his name for the first time. So this was the kind of anecdotal stuff that was going on as we were running the study. And of course, we were optimistic. I mean, I say we on my side, my colleagues and I who were doing the nutrition work, we felt like we had a chance to show actually something beneficial, but we didn't know until we actually started running the study. It took us a couple of years to actually run the study. So at the end, I'm analyzing the data. I'm looking at everything we have, getting ready, hopefully for publication. And what we were most focused on, of course, was the cognitive function, simply because that's the most important thing for anyone with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia, it's getting that cognition back. And that's just not memory, of course, that's recallability, that's executive functioning, that's processing speed, spatial awareness, 
time awareness, you know, all the different things that go into cognition. And so as I'm analyzing the data, lo and behold, what I discover is that at nine and 12 months, we get clinically and statistically significant improvements in cognitive function. Wow. Marley, it blew us away. And, and this was done when? So we ran this study, uh, I believe we started it in 2009, 2010, and then we published the first paper in 2013. So this was all the aloe vera? So this was aloe vera combined with a few other products. But if you twisted my arm and asked me which is the most important ingredient in this formula, I would tell you it's the aloe polysaccharide, just because not from our own research, but from what other people have shown around the world looking at how this aloe polysaccharide is just so amazing for human health. So but, is this the same as aloe vera juice in health food stores? I know a lot of people take that when trying to heal from different things. Are you talking about that or something totally different? Totally different. So of course, these polysaccharides come from that gel, but the issue with the gel, I mean, I don't have any problem if maybe you're suffering from IBS, you have constipation, diarrhea or something. That gel is not bad for any kind of a gut issue, but in reality, the gel is 99% water. And so to get enough of that polysaccharide contained in that gel to have a therapeutic or beneficial physiological effect, I mean, man, you'd have to drink buckets of that gel. Like you literally could not drink enough to get the benefit that you will derive if you have a concentrated source of those polysaccharides in a powder form. And so the gel's fine. I don't discourage people from taking that stuff if they like it, if they think it tastes good or it helps them or whatever. But the reality is they're getting very little therapeutic effect from that, from those polysaccharides that we use in our formulation. So do you have a formula that people can purchase from you or where do they get this? If yes. They so, try? so I left academics full-time six years ago. I became very disillusioned. As I mentioned, I tried getting more funding from NIH and the Alzheimer's Association after we published the first paper. And then I worked very hard for about another three, four-year period during that time trying to get more funding. And I just got so dejected with the whole process of, again, raising funding because I'm submitting proposals to these folks saying, here, this isn't just an idea. We actually have data. Like We're actually helping people and we have data yeah. to support it. Now help me take the next step. I need more money to keep this research line going. And I got so despondent and dejected about not doing that, that I just decided to leave academics full time. I still have a voluntary appointment at the University of Miami, but I decided to move on in a different path. And I chose to start a company and that hasn't been a bowl of cherries either, but I started Dr. Lewis Nutrition with the daily brain care formula based on the results that we got from our Alzheimer's and multiple sclerosis studies as really our flagship product to help get this message out to the world. And you can, again, go to PubMed. You can look at all the articles we published. I'm running a, a company now that's science-based. I mean, yes, I'm in the business of selling my product, but I'm only selling products that I've either personally researched myself or that I take for myself. I would consider myself to be a very big hypocrite and, quite frankly, stupid if I wasn't taking my own product based on what I showed in our research. But could I go back to the results of the study just for a moment? Yes. Yeah. So in addition to showing the clinically and statistically significant improvements in cognition, which again is unheard of, and even 10 years ago, when we published that first paper to today, there has been nothing else like that. You can look at, again, medications, other nutritionals, hyperbaric oxygen, acupuncture, music therapy, sound therapy. I don't care what you want to look at. 
nothing else has showed what we did. And I, I'm sorry if that sounds arrogant or egotistical, but I am very proud of that. And again, nothing else even challenges that. But in addition to that, we show a global improvement in immune function according to the CD4 to CD8 ratio, which is not just important for people with Alzheimer's. That's important for all of us. Yeah. And we want that we want that ratio to be as high as we can, especially as we age. So we actually showed a nice improvement in that. We showed reductions in two markers called TNF-alpha and VEGF. Those have been classically looked at in cardiovascular disease and cancer. Our paper is probably one of the first to show a reduction in those inflammatory markers in response to what we now call daily brain care, but in terms of a nutritional. We lowered both of those over the 12-month period. We showed a just under a 300% increase in adult stem cells, according to CD14 cells over that 12-month period. Again, something very unheard of. And remember, these were people on average 79.9 years of age. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So when you think of being able to turn on that adult stem cell making process to that degree in people that old, that type of disease, an amazing finding. The paper that I just submitted for publication, I'd like to talk about it, but I'm usually a bit hesitant to talk about things that haven't been published yet. But it's kind of a pre-press, if you will. I'll just say that the other thing that we showed is that I looked at some different ratios of what's called TH1 to TH2 balance in the immune system's functioning. And we actually showed improvements in that as well in response to daily brain care. And we also showed that it is related to improvements in cognitive function as well. So that's not published yet. Hopefully it will be published soon. But again, the stuff that we got in this study, I mean, the results that we showed were just so impressive and so hopeful for us. And again, I'm having caregivers calling me, you know, in tears of joy, telling me that their loved one had never done things in some cases for years that they were doing again. So it really was a high point for my research career. And it still happens today, even though I'm not running clinical trials anymore as my first responsibility. My first responsibility today is, Marla, meeting folks like yourself and helping to spread this word of hope and benefit through nutrition that really most people are not even aware of. They have no clue about. And hopefully over the next few years, I will take this message to a much larger scale. And that's where I really feel compelled to do this because I think as running a business, I can do this much more effectively than I could have if I had just stayed in academics for the rest of my career. Yeah, I think that was a good transition at that point for you, for the benefit of everyone. So you mentioned also MS. Yes. Right. So what were you finding with MS? Thank you for that. I I wanted to share that as well. So we ran kind of like a sister design in terms of a 12-month intervention, looking at the blood from baseline to 12 months. And then MS, obviously, cognition is not as significantly affected as it is with folks with Alzheimer's. So really, for folks with MS, it's more about quality of life and then functionality. So we had a different set of measurements that we looked at there, but the same schedule baseline, three, six, nine, and 12 months. So As we began running this study, and actually I hadn't had anyone in my family with either Alzheimer's or MS, but as I got to run both of these studies, it obviously became very emotional and and very powerful to me to see the impact of these diseases on folks' lives. But one of the things that I learned about folks with MS is that they actually die from infection. MS itself doesn't actually kill them. It's some kind of secondary infection. So because they have such a dysregulated immune system, It's very difficult for them to fend off, say, a lung infection or even a UTI. And so they end up dying from these infections. So at baseline, they had an average, if you can believe this, of eight infections. And by 12 months, they went all the way down to two and a half. 
Oh. I mean, that was a huge finding, again, on that clinical level where it's not only very deadly for folks, but it's also costing the medical system a lot of money to treat those folks with infections. And then on the immune side and the inflammatory side, very similar to the Alzheimer's study, although some different markers, but we showed a modulation or an improvement in inflammation and then an overall improvement in immune function as well. And then all the quality of life stuff. So the ADAS cog actually, I didn't mention is the gold standard for assessing cognition and dementia in the Alzheimer's study. The FAMS is the gold standard for assessing functioning in folks with MS. Again, same thing like across the board, most of the subscales within the FAMS showed statistically significant improvements. Uh, and then the quality of life stuff, you know, everything related to like mood, all the different systems checks, general quality of life, all those things have improved across the board over the 12-month period too. So Both studies, I mean, just far exceeded our expectations. Again, we were optimistic and hopeful that we could help people. But when you run a study, until you get the data, until you actually see the end result of what happened, you really don't know. But we published so far three papers from the Alzheimer's study, two papers from the MS study. As I mentioned, we just submitted a new paper from the Alzheimer's study, and we were going to show almost the exact same thing. Uh, with this TH1 to TH2 balance in immune function in the MS study as well. So that will be another paper. We're just getting started on that one. But uh, those will be two new papers that we'll publish from those two studies as well. So again, even though I'm not full-time in academics anymore, I continue wanting to look at our data, see what we have there, and see what can be published that ultimately will help to show, again, this continuing message that we have of how beneficial the allopolysaccharides are to human health. And that's really the bottom line. That's fantastic, first of all, to get those kind of results, to get any kind of results for Alzheimer's and dementia and MS as well. But also such profound results from this product is amazing. So I understand why the grants are hard to come by. They're looking for something that will be very financially profitable for them. So if you have this one product that comes from right. the plant aloe vera. That's right. It's not and, yes, yes, that's exactly right. So I'm glad you have pursued this work and now you're on the business side of it and providing this supplement for people that could really change lives in a big way. The product that you have available, how often are people taking it? Is it once a day? How do they take this supplement? And when do you start to see a little shift? Was it at three months or how far in before you notice changes? Great question. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. But to your question, don't be confused or, you know, any listener, don't be confused by the name Daily Brain here. Again, going back to what I said earlier, these polysaccharides literally affect every 30 plus trillion cells in our body. So the body doesn't care what some name is on the label. It's what you're, you know, putting in your mouth and giving it to actually function properly. So in terms of like some of the other effects that people have noticed, definitely one of the big ones is people will report that they sleep better if they have any issues with sleeping, which obviously is another huge problem in our country today. Better GI functioning. I just had a customer not too long ago have IBSC, and she literally said before she got started on Daily Brain Care, she was getting ready to drop a couple of thousand dollars to go see this functional medicine physician and have a big workup because she had struggled with IBSC for so many years, tried all these different things and got on daily brain care within one month. She was already pooping like a champ and, and felt amazing. So <laughs> she, that's awesome. She said, 
Yes. <laughs> he saved herself that $2,000 consult with the functional medicine physician, and now she just loves our product. So GI definitely is a big one. I think generally people will feel more energetic, like they'll wake up refreshed, definitely because of what we know about lowering inflammation. For example, post-exercise soreness. I know for me, that's something that I haven't felt in many, many years I've been taking my own formula for over 10 years. I've had my mother taking it for a little longer than that. We have a three-year-old daughter. I, I started her on it when she was about six months when we started introducing solid foods in her diet. The only reason I didn't start her on it day one was because the powder was too thick for the nipple. So I couldn't get it to flow through a nipple for an infant. And now she just turned three. I'm telling you without, again, sounding like I'm bragging, this child's brain is unreal. She's eaten a plant-based diet. We've not injected her with anything. I'm saying chemicals. And she takes these polysaccharides every day. Marla, I'm telling you, this child's brain is amazing. She started speaking in complete sentences before she turned two years of age. And her comprehension is just on another level. But, you know, I, I say from cradle to grave, I mean, it kind of depends on what you're dealing with. If it's fatigue or brain fog or insomnia or lethargy, feeling like you're just kind of out of it. You know, all these different things can be improved by daily brain care. I think for me, I just feel very well. Like I hardly ever have a bad day. I typically wake up out of bed and I'm ready to take the day on whatever my day consists of. And I just have a lot of energy. My brain and my mind are always so sharp. I don't really have this fog issue that so many people have today that, that's definitely crippling. In fact, another one is um, usually within a couple of months, people will notice their skin, nails, and hair even feel better. So I see a lot of times people, after they've been on the product for a couple of months, I'll notice their face is glowing, like they have a whole different look to their face. So it's literally everything. And some of the ones that I've mentioned are some of the typical ones. Now, you asked me about the speed of the response. The majority of people, which I would say 50 to 60%, fall into that range of 30 to about 60 days where you know they'll start having things happen over that one to two month period. And then the slower responders, again, for whatever reason that is, I don't know, that's very debatable, but they'll usually take maybe three months or longer. So I, I tell people to really give this a fair shot of at least 90 days if they feel a little skeptical or maybe they don't really try dietary supplements or they don't really use dietary supplements. And I also like to remind people, nutrition works very differently from medication. So if you have a headache and you take Tylenol and then 15 minutes later, your headache goes away, well, that's a very specific action that that drug has. Nutrition is entirely different. You have to allow the body time for cells to turn over and for our physiology to do its job. And in most cases, that doesn't just happen like that. You have to be patient and allow nutrition to actually give the information to the cells so that the cells over time do their job. But I would yeah. say for most people, you know, if you haven't felt something within the first 90 days, then we probably need to look at some other nutritional and behavioral issues to see what else is going on and what is lacking. Yeah, that's true. Even with supplements, if you have blood work done and you're low in certain vitamins, say, it takes like three months to get your body on track. It's not like you take it for a week and your blood will show something different. It does that's take right. time, like you're saying. That's right. This all sounds amazing. So it's taken in a powder, you said. Do you mix it with water or how is this taken each day? We actually have it in capsules now too. But yes, if you take the powder, then... I'm kind of a Cro-Magnon man. I just scoop it, you know, just, just straight into my mouth. 
oh, one of my brothers is like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's probably not for everybody, but yes, you can mix it with literally anything you want. Water, juice, smoothies, tea, yogurt, applesauce, mashed potato soup. The only thing I tell people not to do is mix it in something with very high heat. You don't yeah. want the high heat to damage the nutrition, but you can mix it pretty much with anything. All right. Just not hot tea and coffee. Exactly. Don't put it in anything boiling. All right. So <laughs> what about the rice bran studies that you did and how did that affect people? And do you sell a product that has that in it? So the rice bran is very interesting too. So this is a very specific form of rice bran that's been hydrolyzed with shiitake mushroom enzyme. So the rice bran itself is very nutritious. And what I've learned about rice bran over the years is actually very fascinating in the sense of when rice is milled from the field, again, I think it's something like 70 or 80% of the world eats white rice, not brown or black or yellow, you know, some other color that still contains the rice bran in the pod. But the rice bran is actually where most of the nutrition lies. So when that bran gets stripped off the capsule, guess what? Mostly that bran goes to feed animals. Mm. So actually the humans who are milling that rice and then eating the white rice and then feeding their cows or their pigs or their chickens the rice bran, their animals are actually healthier than they are. <laughs> so it's really like unfortunate that humans are milling this amazing gift from Mother Nature and not utilizing that nutrition. But what this company that I work with in Japan, they're called Daiwa Pharmaceutical, and it's not a pharma company. That's just the historically their company started as a drug distributor, but they shifted into the dietary supplement world early in their career. But they left the name as is. But they have a product called BioBrand. That is this hydrolyzed rice bran that we studied at the University of Miami. I'll just tell you briefly, I met them through a lady who was a cancer patient at our university. She had metastatic thyroid disease, and it spread quite a bit throughout her body. And she had surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, the whole nine yards from a conventional treatment perspective. And then they told her she only had six months to live. And so she found this product called BioBrand, and then she started taking it. And Marla, she ended up living another nine years. And unfortunately, she did eventually succumb to the cancer. But I got to meet and know her radiation oncologist along the way. And even he couldn't believe why she was still alive. He would tell her, Barbara, I'm looking at your lab report. And I don't know why you're sitting here in front of me. According to your lab report, you should be dead. So even he had to admit that this bio brand was doing something very incredible for her. And much like the aloe vera story that I told you, this hydrolyzed rice bran is very similar. So it lowers inflammation. It boosts immune function overall. It improves our natural killer cell production, which is one of our first line of defenses against virus and transformed cells. And so we ended up running this series of three studies, again, just showing very amazing things, not maybe as profound as, say, for example, the Alzheimer's just because of how serious Alzheimer's is and what little there is to be done for folks with Alzheimer's. But in terms of documenting the effectiveness of this particular rice brand, the articles that we published are just so impressive. And I don't actually sell the bio brand. I'm going to include it in another product that I hope to be launching sometime this year called Daily Immune Care. I'm going to add the bio brand to the daily brain care formula and modify the formulation a bit. But People can get BioBrand through Daiwa. They sell it through their website, through Amazon. You can find BioBrand, I think, in certain stores like out in the West in California and maybe Oregon. I rank it like 1A, 1B, if you will, in terms of 
the aloe and the rice bran being not obviously the same, they're coming from very different plants, but in terms of the same of having these significant effects on immune function, immunomodulation, inflammation, stem cell production, natural killer cell cytotoxicity, all these different things that go into helping us stay healthy. And one of the things I haven't mentioned yet, I'll just take a moment to say this, is that, as I'm sure you know, the immune system is so important to all of our other major organ system functions. So our immune system is not just, along with the skin, our, our first line or our major line of defense against infection, but it's also very important for orchestrating the balance and all this crosstalk that we have among all of our major organ systems. So if our immune system is not functional and surveillance and healthy, by default, by definition, we cannot expect all of our other organ systems to be functioning as well. So it's so important and so crucial to have our immune system functioning properly. And these two particular polysaccharides are very important to doing that. It definitely makes me so interested in that product, the aloe vera one in particular. Absolutely. But as far as far as the rice bran one, I'm curious. I know with the autoimmune, staying away from grains, not just gluten, mm -hmm. is beneficial. So I'm wondering if that falls in line with something to avoid if you have autoimmune or if this is different somehow. The different things I've heard about rice, like it can contain arsenic, it yes. can have cross-contamination, it's still got a type of gluten, I believe, not the typical ones, wheat, barley, and rye. So I'm just curious about that when it comes to the rice bran. Do you have any thoughts <clears throat> on that? So that's a great question. We ran another study one time where we looked at not allergy, but sensitivity to, I think this panel was 120 different foods and condiments. And in the process of running that, rice, I mean, literally never came up in the identification of these IgG-mediated food sensitivities. Now, again, that's something different from food allergy, but I do know that in the course of running that study, we looked at the research on sensitivities and allergy. And again, rice is very uncommon. And so I would say I can't answer that question definitively. There's no problem. But I think for most people, it would not be problematic. And remember that we're talking only like one, maybe two, maybe three grams per day. I mean, in some cases where someone has, let's say, late stage cancer or advanced Alzheimer's or very serious heart disease, truly toward the end, or maybe somebody's thinking that they may not live much longer, then I would say, yes, increase it to maybe eight, 10, 12 grams per day. We're talking about a, a relatively small amount of food content. So the best way to really answer that question for someone that's had either any autoimmune issue or food sensitivity or food allergy is just simply try one dose to see if you have any kind of response to it. If maybe you get a headache or you have some itchiness or something happens to the bowel or gut, you have some kind of reaction like that, then I would say don't do it. But I can tell you in, in my now somewhere between 15 and 20 years of doing this, I can count on one hand the number of people who have had that type of sensitivity issue where they've just been like the most ultra sensitive person you can imagine and they couldn't take it for whatever reason but it's just a very rare number of people in the population so i feel good that for the vast majority of people you'll be okay but there's always the exception to the rule so i guess it's two different kinds of rice too we're talking about like the white rice versus right. the kind like you said that still has the whole or the way it's processed is that's right Different and, this, and remember, this is only the brand itself. It's not the other components of the rice. 
So there could okay. be differences between just the brand by itself versus the entire kernel of the rice. It does sound like, yeah, that may be very different. Well, everyone knows it's good to exercise, but let's touch briefly on that last element. And maybe just by explaining what you do to exercise and keep your body fit and your mind fit as well. Absolutely. So again, it's nutrition and food, dietary supplements, and then of course, exercise and physical activity. So I played sports my whole life. I got into it at a very young age when my grandfather took me out in the backyard and started pitching baseball to me and and then got into drug-free competitive bodybuilding in college. But for me, exercise is so important. It's like the old saying, if you don't use it, you will lose it. Not just our muscles and even our skeleton, but also our brain too, our mind. I mean, everything is affected by exercise. So you can look at different components of exercise training, intensity being one of them, where if you're talking about high intensity, you're talking about maybe bodybuilding, strength training, powerlifting, sprinting, you know, explosive movements that are short in duration, but they require a lot of effort versus a low intensity movement where maybe you just, you know, you walk around in your neighborhood and you're doing it kind of at a leisurely pace and, you know, you're not really pushing yourself too much. So I definitely lean toward the high intensity type of movement. I think that it's very beneficial. It's actually way more beneficial than low intensity for a number of reasons. One of the biggest ones is that you will stimulate, again, all of your organ systems, not just your muscles and your bones. So it's very good for all of your organ systems. It also helps to stimulate things like growth hormone. That's very beneficial for us, particularly as we age, we want growth hormone to continue being stimulated and then that type of high intensity exercise also is very good for your metabolism. So not only are you burning sources of fuel, whether it's carbohydrate or fat during the actual exercise, but it also causes you to boost your metabolism over a longer period of time as well. So I like to do some kind of explosive movement every day, usually a form of weight training. And then I also try to sprint about once a week. I don't really do too much low intensity stuff. I mean, sometimes my family and I will take a walk around the block or go to the beach and maybe swim a little bit in the ocean. But I really think for me, like high intensity type of exercise is the most beneficial. There has been a lot more research done showing how beneficial strength training is and how actually we confer a lot of benefits to strength training that we used to think classically were only in the realm of cardiovascular training. So it's actually very important to do strength training. Again, all that benefit, not just for the muscles and the bones, but for the brain the heart, the liver, the kidneys, every other major organ is just so important. And that's why movement is so important every day. Yeah, I've heard that strength training is really important, even more than the cardio type of fitness. Absolutely. Like, so as far as your product, as far as learning more about the information you've shared, where can people find you? So the best website in terms of having the most information is drlewisnutrition.com. That's DR with no period lewisnutrition.com. And that's where you'll see a lot of articles that I've written. I don't put the original articles that we publish scientifically. I don't want to violate any copyright issues. But if someone wants to contact me and discuss that more, I'm happy to do that. My email address is john at drjohnlewis.com. And then we have on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, we have Dr. Lewis Nutrition as a channel there as well. Those are kind of just in progress. I would say drlewisnutrition.com, the traditional website is actually the best place for information, but we do have all those other social media channels as well. Great. And Daily Brand Care can be purchased on that website yes. as well. Okay. 
drlewisnutrition.com. It's on dailybraincare.com and it's also on Amazon. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. I'll be a guinea pig for that. (laughs) I appreciate you coming on here and sharing this information about polysaccharides and learning about the aloe vera is so fascinating. So I can't wait to try the product now that I've learned all about it. Thanks for sharing that with the listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Be sure and follow Open-Minded Healing so you'll get every new episode as soon as it's released each Tuesday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.